Topic of our Dhamma talk near this evening is one wishing to attain that state of peace should act thus. And uh, 14 qualities are uh, described uh, in a well-known discourse. And uh, there are just uh, two of the verses that uh, we shall uh, take a look at. And uh, the first one is as follows. One skilled in good wishing to attain near that state of peace should act thus. He or she should be able, should be straight, upright, obedient, gentle and humble. One should be contented, easy to support, with few duties, living lightly, controlled in senses, discreet, not impudent, unattached to families. What we shall do is we'll explain these different qualities that are necessary, that the Buddha has given us certainly necessary for attaining that state of peace. The first one being in the Pali scriptural language, sakra, which is an adjective and means able or possible. So in other words, one should be able or capable to practice virtue. Now, a person who practices virtue, sila, must, first of all, have faith that such practice is beneficial. And as we've seen already, the first and foremost benefit of the training in virtue comes in the form of non-remorse. And... Then one needs to be uh, healthy. Now, healthy means that one at least uh, has uh, enough health to digest one's food, as is explained in one of the discourses, namely on the five limbs of striving. Now, we also need to possess certain courage to practice certain sila. And especially in modern society, where, let's say, drinking of wine is certainly common, especially in wine-producing countries. So it takes certain courage at the dinner table together with the family to say, well, I'm sorry, I'm not going to go for that glass of wine. And the Venerasadu Pandita Bhivams of Burma very much stresses this certain point. We do need to possess certain courage. We need to defend certain our precepts actively and not certainly easily give in to the views of the general public. 
And so certain zeal or certain effort in this certain regard is needed. Now, in the context of virtue, the commentary also says that we need to possess well, some degree of intelligence to comply with the precepts. Now, to give you an example for this, let's say after sitting meditation, you then go over to the bathroom and then afterwards you want to wash your hands. However, you find plenty of ants in the sink. Now, you've taken the precept upon you not to take life. It would be so easy simply to take that handle of the faucet and then do what? <laughs> Just flush these ants down the drain. Now, that would be the easy solution, and whether this solution is really in accordance with the precepts, you can think about this yourselves. And so, when we are on a retreat and we observe the eight precepts, then we do need to you know, think of ways of uh, doing things in a proper uh, manner. And so in the case of uh, those ants in uh, the sink that we don't want to uh, flush down uh, the drain, well, we'll uh, some or other uh, need to find a way to you know, move them out, uh, out of the sink. Maybe uh, by gently blowing them, uh, or uh, maybe by uh, tapping next to them without certainly hitting the individual end. So this at times can be quite cumbersome. I know it takes certain time, but it's worth it. And then, if you've succeeded to uh, well, encourage the ants to move somewhere else, yeah, then afterwards you'll feel yeah, surely positive about this. You've saved uh, yeah, their yeah, lives. Now, another yeah, case where yeah, we need to yeah, use our yeah, intellect yeah, or our intelligence yeah, when it comes to observing the precepts would be flies. So uh, in certain retreat centers there are plenty of flies, in particular in the kitchen or and sometimes even in the meditation hall. So what do we do with the flies? A simple solution would be to get to go to some general appliance shop and then to get one of these certain electrical appliances that you hook up to the electricity and this appliance will do what? It will zap each and every fly that certainly lands on the appliance. Would you say this is a rather considerate way of dealing with the flies? It's uh, well. It is certainly uh, for sure an effective way, uh, but certainly uh, whether this is really uh, whether this comes under uh, our uh, precept of uh, um, protecting life is another uh, question. And certainly, uh, so with the flies, certainly uh, we 
you know, as you know, meditators at a you know, retreat center, especially you know, for you know, the staff, you know, we need to think, you know, think of ways and means you know, to handle or to deal you know, with the flies you know, that you know, um, you know, doesn't harm them. And one thing you know, would be a long-term you know, solution, you know, well, you know, to you know, not to leave any you know, waste you know, flying around and to cover the drains and so on. And then, in some centers, there is a problem with ants, ants in the meditation hall. So I suppose probably not here. Yes, even here. Oh, big ones. Oh, in Novini we have tiny, well, we have a whole assortment of ants from big to very small. And, so, you know, our, you know, and Jim can testify to you know, this, and the smallest ones are actually the worst. You know, they you know, you know, prick quite a bit. Now, um, one you know, solution for it, you know, the ants, you know, was uh, namely to place some candies next to the door in order to attract all the ants and just let them, you know, who congregate there. But this is not necessarily working. Now, in Lumbini, after a couple of years of problems with the ants in the meditation hall, finally, someone had the golden idea, namely to use camphor balls. And so the ants tend to be sensitive to smell. They don't like the smell of the camphor ball, and so of the camphor balls, and so. And if a meditator can stand the smell of camphor, then the solution would be to place a couple of camphor balls around one's seat. And that has, at least for some, worked quite well. But if you're sensitive to camphor, to the smell of camphor, then something else needs to be, some other solution needs to be found. Okay, so you know, when you know, we you know, possess certain you know, these four you know, qualities, namely, or you know, that we have in the benefit, that we have faith in the benefits of uh, you know, the practice of you know, virtue, that we're also healthy, and certain we can, you know, for instance, you know, easily you know, observe the you know, precept of not taking food after you know, twelve o'clock or after you know, noon, solar you know, noon, and certainly you know, then also you know, we possess courage and. Uh, uh, intelligence is there, you know, then you know, we're considered to be uh, able or capable of you know, practicing you know, virtue. And so when we practice you know, meditation over a longer period of time, then you know, we will find as our intuitive wisdom will deepen more and more, it will also help us to well, more refine our virtue, our way of doing things. And so and then on the other hand, as we pay more attention to sila, this certainly in turn may have a positive impact on the arising of, of intuitive wisdom. So things are certain aspects are connected.
Now, the second quality that a person should certainly possess who wishes to attain that state of peace, and the state of peace refers to what? Nibbana, there you go. And uh, of course, certain peace arises in our meditation practice to some peace of mind to some extent, but certainly there is a far greater peace, and it, this is the peace of Nibbana. So the Buddha recommends that we refine our being in another way, namely that we ensure to be upright, straight forward, and honest. The Pali term for this is uju, which is an adjective. And so, um, in order to you know, practice certain you know, virtue, we do need certain you know, honesty. We need certain you know, that certain you know, straight certain you know, forwardness. Now, very much you know, related to you know, the second certain you know, quality is certain you know, the third certain you know, quality of suju. And certain, which is certain also an adjective, and it consists of two parts, namely su and certain uju, which then has been translated as being perfectly upright, very upright. So, in order to practice certain the Dhamma and also to comply. With virtue, we need lots of honesty. Now, there is a clear-cut implication here for us as meditators. On occasion, it certainly happens that a meditator comes to the interview and then boldly reports that he or she can observe the rising and falling movement of the abdomen non-stop with the, without the without any single thoughts occurring for, let's say, five to ten minutes. Now. Uh, this certainly, uh, do you think, uh, at the beginning of one's certain uh, vipassana practice is certainly uh, easy to achieve or not? Uh, no, it's very difficult. And certainly uh, you uh, may find, uh, you will by now even know uh, for yourselves, that within uh, just a few seconds of uh, our observation of the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, uh, the mind certainly uh, tends to uh, wander off. So you observe your rising, and then maybe towards the end of it, or uh, uh, between the end, uh, the end of the uh, rising and the beginning of the next falling, so between that, uh, in that pause, uh, the mind certainly uh, goes off. You know, thinking about something totally unrelated. So, when it comes to an area like the interview, we want to practice much honesty and certain straightforwardness in our speech. And so we sit and we speak according to reality, and we realize that every single word that we say matters.
And in you know, Burma, you know, when you know, practicing you know, with people who've been practicing with you know, the Venerable Sadhu Pandita Bhimsa, you know, they you know, found you know, over time that when the Venerable is asking some question, then they really try very hard to give a proper, accurate answer. And so this willingness to really stick to the truth and to be as accurate as possible at times goes to an extent that after an interview, one a meditator might suddenly realize, oh, maybe my statement wasn't quite one hundred percent accurate, and then you know, during the next interview, you know, the meditator you know, might say, oh, venerable sir, last time I said so and so, and suddenly actually it wasn't quite you know, like you know, this, and then comes suddenly you know, the correction. So this is something you know, that suddenly you know, develops quite naturally in the course of you know, the meditation practice. Now, also for a proper communication you know, between you know, the, the student and you know, the teacher, it's important that you know, there is a clear and certain correct certain communication going on, and only then will the teacher be in a position to properly assess a meditator's practice. So, if a meditator is trying to, you know, no, no, oh, beautified you know, things and you know, then present a you know, report in a way you know, that you know, leaves the you know, teacher thinking, oh, this meditator is doing really well, then the teacher will have a hard time, or it will be somewhat difficult to give really qualified advice. And so when one has had some difficult experiences, then it's important to be very honest about this and speak according to reality. Now, Assimilate you know, that certain you know, the you know, venerable Nasada Udnasasana, a long-term disciple of the Venerable Sadhu Pandita, has given in this context is in the context of Uju and Suju, is that of an outstanding artist. Now if an outstanding artist uses you know, excellent certain paints and then happens to do a painting on an old and dirty canvas that has lots of stains on it, then you can imagine the outcome will be somewhat mediocre. The same thing goes for meditators. If a meditator is not honest in his his or her meditation practice, then the outcome of the practice will also be mediocre. When the outstanding artist does a painting with first-class paints on a clean, a spick-and-span canvas, then the painting will be very clear. In the same manner, when a meditator's mind is pure, then his or her her practice will be very clear. And please do keep in mind 
that among the four attainments, namely attainment of stream entry, attainment of once return, non-return, and so arahantship, the very first attainment is being characterized by one single thing, namely purity. So it's very much a matter of, or in our meditation practice, it's a matter of working towards greater and greater bodily, verbal, and mental purity. And it's good to know this from the very start of our retreat, so that we then can make the necessary adjustments. Now, obedience is a quality that certainly at certain our present day and age, especially in schools and certainly then at home between parents and certain children, is very much cherished or not? Not. <laughs> Rather not. And maybe in an Asian context, but not necessarily in a highly industrialized country. And so, however, the Buddha stresses this quality, and he says in our short discourse that one should be obedient. And so, you know, the Pali you know, term you know, here you know, for obedience, or the term for obedience is so what jasa. And so, you know, this term, for instance, we find in the Mangala you know, Sutta, you know, where it says, Kanti, you know, kanti jasa wa jasata, samananan cha dasa nam kale na damasake cha ita mangalam uttamam, which means patience and then obedience, meeting those who have calmed the mental defilements and discussing the Dhamma on suitable occasions is the greatest blessing. And so, so this obedience does certainly occur in different certain contexts in the text. The adjective here would be suwacha, which means to be obedient, certainly compliant. Another meaning of it certainly would certainly also be as easily accepting the instructions given by a teacher. So, when a teacher during the interview or at certain other occasions is giving a certain instruction, oh, please maybe slow down a little bit or try to be more mindful. If the meditator then gets into a big argument, no, why should I then? <laughs> this is, you know, I don't feel like it and this is not the right time, not the right place, etc., etc. Then you can imagine what happens. <clears throat> so, if we really want to have uh, or gain benefits from you know, the meditation practice, you know, then you know, we need to 
display a certain degree of obedience and certainly, in other words, certainly easily accept the instructions which are given with a pure intention and then apply those instructions. And a person who is practicing under a teacher and is receiving guidance should consider himself or herself extremely fortunate, namely as if holding a golden pot. You get instructions that eventually will lead you to that state of peace which is so difficult to gain. Now, the texts contain a beautiful example of an elder, namely Mahatna Sari, or, or the elder Sariputta, who was one of the chief disciples of the Buddha. And on one occasion, a young or seven-year-old Samanera novice saw that the elder was not wearing his robes evenly all around. There is a particular monastic training rule that the robes should be worn evenly, the lower robe as well as the upper robe. So it seems the elder didn't pay for that moment, didn't pay proper attention to the way he was wearing his robes. And so this seven-year-old Samanera pointed it out to him. And so, now, just imagine a seven-year-old youngster giving some advice to an elder of great sadness of many wasas, or standing of many wasas. And so under normal circumstances, if you were in this situation, would you take the advice or not? Huh? You might, you might tell the Samanera, well, who are you to tell to give me instructions? Now, the elder Nasariputta, however, acted in a very different manner, and suddenly he even clasped his hands in front of his chest and then addressed the novice, saying, if ever, no, or should ever no, you see no, another mistake in, in me, please do not hesitate to point it out to, to me. Now, just imagine this degree of humbleness and uh, of uh, willing uh, to uh, take uh, instructions even from a seven-year-old uh, um, novice. Now, the elder Sariputta, just as a general remark, is known for his humility. And on one occasion, he was compared to an ox who had lost its horns. And so apparently, oxen who would have lost their horns display no more pride. And then on another occasion, the elder 
compared himself to a foot, what do you call that, a foot mat. And so when you enter a house, then you wipe off the shoes on that foot mat. So this much of humility. Now, there are certain mental states that create rigidity in the mind. And those are in particular, as given in the Abhidhamma, wrong views and certain pride and conceit. And certain so wrong view is certain in the sense that certain one wrongly in an unjustified certain manner interprets certain things or certain conditions and certain one pre-assumes certain things which are not necessarily given and certain so wrong view, which is a mental state, then manifests as wrong interpretation or belief. And the proximate cause for the arising of wrong view is certainly given as an unwillingness to see the noble ones, the areas, and the sins by seeing the noble ones, one gets to hear the Dhamma and this then can help to correct wrong views. Now, a practical example for a wrong view would be to hold the view of the existence of a permanent self. And when at first this may be it may seem quite justified when we speak to one another, we make use of this personal pronoun all the time. And then when we go somewhat deeper in our meditation practice, then we discover that, well, they're just these physical formations, they're just these mental formations, and certainly then, what about the self? There seems to be no self. And so with this then, our view in the existence of a self then gets suddenly shaken to some extent. Now, when we hold on, tenaciously hold on to the view of self, then everything centers, or everything well, happens around this certain self. And when we see some visible object, it is I am seeing. When we hear some sound, it is I am hearing. And when talking, it is I who is talking, and so on and so forth. 
And then when our views get, sorry, when my views certainly get attacked, then it feels like a personal attack. Now, a strong presence of the mental factor of wrong view then does certainly create a certain rigidity in the mind. And the same thing goes certainly for pride and certain conceit. It can be because of many different things that certainly we believe to be a very important person. And on one occasion at the meditation center in Lumbini, we had a meditator who filled in the registration form and then under the question, well, what is your motivation for practicing? The person then wrote to overcome the notion of I am the most important thing in the world. <laughs> So the very fact, you know, the very fact that you know, this uh, new meditator, you know, you know acknowledged you know, this uh, particular you know, pride and conceit is already an important step in uh, the right uh, direction. Now, what do you think? When our mind is uh, you know, strongly influenced by wrong view and also by you know, pride and conceit, you know, then you know, will our mind certainly you know, be rather you know, gentle, rather soft and pliable, or you know, will it be uh, you know, rather rigid? Well, obviously, it's a too simple question, I do realize. And <laughs> And so, obviously, the mind will be quite rigid. And so, when we observe predominant objects with such a rigid mind, it may cause all sorts of difficulties in our meditation practice. <coughs> and the explanation is as follows. Namely, the Dhamma itself, you know, by its nature, is rather subtle and rather refined and delicate. And if we were to attempt you know, to understand and to you know, attain the Dhamma with a mind that is rigid and that is rough, then it's and certainly tense, then you know, this is almost impossible. So we need to shape our mind in a way that it can easily absorb the mind. So the no, sorry, that it can easily absorb you know, the Dhamma. And so for this then you know, we need to you know, soften our you know, mind. And this can be best done by you know, developing wholesome you know, mental states such as faith 
also by ensuring that our intentions are wholesome and furthermore that our mind is sharp. And certainly also that there is a strong desire to practice and we cherish the practice. So under these circumstances, it is likely that gradually our rigid, tense and certainly rough mind will soften up. Now, if a chunk of iron ore can be turned into steel and the steel then gets turned into a very thin razor blade then if this is possible it should also be possible to turn a mind that is rough and tense and rigid into something rather soft and pliable. Now this gentleness or malleability of the mind is actually a wholesome, it is a separate, a very distinct mental factor, and it is a wholesome, a skillful mental factor. Now, as we practice gradually more and more of that certain gentleness will arise. Now, We've spoken already about certain pride and conceit contributing to the arising of rigidity in the mind. And hence, the Buddha saw this as a difficulty, as a danger, and hence he then recommended that one should be humble. The Pali, this is anati mani. Now, mana, the Pali term, means pride and certain conceit. And if it is the superiority conceit, then it is referred to in the Pali scriptural language as ati mana. And one who is certainly proud is certainly known as Atimani. And so the term used here for one should be humble is Anatimani with the prefix Anna, which is a negative marker. So one should not be proud and certainly conceited. Now, at the time of the Buddha, there were several occasions of Brahmins having the wonderful and rare opportunity of meeting with the Buddha in person and receiving instructions from him. And so, because 
avert their pride and conceit based on their belonging to the highest caste in the social order. They did not take those instructions given by the Buddha to heart and did not then gain the Dhamma. So this is something to think of. There were only a few Brahmins who managed to set their pride and conceit aside and said to really wholeheartedly listen to what the Buddha had said to say and then to apply this and then who actually gained the Dhamma. Now, what does this mean applying to our modern time? When pride and conceit can arise owing to many different things, it might arise owing to our high educational qualifications, or pride and conceit may arise because of our material wealth, or it might arise because maybe we happen to be a great athlete, or maybe because of our beauty, and so on and so forth. And when we happen to be extremely successful in life, and that we, relatively speaking, don't come across much suffering, so we live in a cocoon of comfort and ease and success, then why bother taking interest in the Dhamma? And so there's not much inclination there. But a person who has little pride and conceit and is fully exposed to the ups and downs in life, such a person will be in a much better position to absorb the Dhamma. Now, Pride and conceit may arise in many different ways, and so you could make it an ongoing project that whenever pride and conceit comes up in this or that form, then you try to spot it right away, and then you label it accordingly as pride, and you try to observe it and know its nature. With our pride greatly humbled, an attainment of Nibbana is possible. However, if we practice with an attitude, oh, I'm the best yogi here during this retreat, no one can compare with me, then it's rather unlikely that you're going to gain the Dhamma. In fact, this transition from mundane consciousness to supramundane consciousness requires a tremendous amount of mental purity 
and even at that certain point, an absence of any self-reference. So when you ask meditators about the experience, you can you will hear that at least at that point, there was no sense of I am observing the rising and falling or some other predominant object. All there is is just a bare observation of whatever predominant object is occurring. Now, another rather relevant aspect to keep in mind and to shape our our conduct accordingly is certainly that of Santusako. And Santusako is a Pani word, which means one should be contented, one should be satisfied with what one is receiving. <clears throat> now, as a meditator, on a, a, a retreat like a, here at a, the forest a, a refuge, one a, should be contented with a, a, the food one is receiving, with the accommodation a, being a, provided, and a, a, then a, the general a, a, infrastructure, a, which a, in a, this case are all a, a, pretty close to a, perfect. And as a meditator, one should not follow modern fashions or trends wanting this new item and that new item. Now, the next quality is that of easy to support. One should be easy to support. Subara is certainly the party term for this. And we should be satisfied with the material things that are being provided. So let's say a donor appears and the donor then makes arrangements for the next meal, let's say lunch, and then the donor specifies the menu. And then the donor has certain preferences and let's say rather sweet food. And then you happen to be on retreat and then you see the food available on the buffet and you take it, you go to your table, you start eating and you realize it's rather sweet food and then you dislike sweet food and you rush to the kitchen and oh, do you have some sour food for me? Now, this would be an outright blow into the face of the donor. And so, when we meditate, we don't want to be fussy. 
And fussiness is certain a quality that occurs in meditators once in a while. And I'm not saying in everyone, but in some, this quality is quite certain well developed. And it really interferes with the meditation practice. And the opposite is a state of well being easily supported, and a meditator, such a meditator, will hold well the the view that whatever food I receive, it's fine as long as I attain the Dhamma. So. When comparing the two, practicing the Dhamma and gaining the Dhamma and food, well, the food is of a secondary nature. And far more important is certain to gain the Dhamma. And from a really practical point of view, based on experiences certainly with meditators in Burma, it's usually the fussy meditators who will not gain the Dhamma. Whereas those who are rather simple, easily contented, easily taken care of, they who don't complain and they just focus on the practice, those are the ones who do gain the peace of Nibbana. Now, when we are on a retreat, on occasion of things suddenly get suddenly somewhat difficult. Let's say we experience plenty of physical pains and aches, or we also experience difficult mental states. And suddenly then one escape route would be to busy ourselves. And suddenly then we find some cleaning equipment and anything you know, seems better than practice. And so even if we have to clean the toilets, okay, let's suddenly do it, you know, this. And so, so and then we find one job, we find another job and yet another job, and we might spend hours upon hours doing these cleaning duties. Or we might find, well, the furniture in our room is not quite in the proper position, so then we remodel the room. <laughs> So the Buddha says, don't go for this. One should have few duties. The Pali for this is Appakicca, and Appa or Kicca is your duty, your chore, your work, and Appa means small, little, or insignificant. And so when we are now on a retreat, we really have to be focused on our work of Dhamma, of practicing the Dhamma. And not get sidetracked with other things like cleaning the toilets and so on and so forth. Now, in if we get sidetracked, 
and certain, we do a lot of unrelated certain activities, then this will clearly interfere with the development of concentration of our samadhi. And in this certain context, there is certain a true story from Burma, from the Mahasi Meditation Center, Namely, during the early days, so this must have been in the 19, late 1940s, the center had just been established and then some meditators started sweeping the grounds. And then Venerable Mahasi was asked in this regard whether the yogis should be encouraged to do this kind, these kind of cleaning duties or not. And his reply was, let the meditators do their, let, their, let them spend as much time as possible on their actual meditation practice and all these chores, let other people do them. Now, Burma, being a traditionally Buddhist country, there are many volunteers who show up at the monasteries, meditation centers, and who are quite willing to do these certain kind of chores. Now, however, here in the West, it's not necessarily the same thing. And so as meditators, we do need to help with certain chores in running the center, which is fine, but we should limit it to those certain specified jobs and not overdo it. And when we carry out our yogi job, then we try to do so with a fair amount of mindfulness and being well focused on the activity we are engaged in. Now, when we come on a retreat, then it is not necessary that we bring our entire wardrobe from back home along. All of our clothing, all of our 10 different pairs of shoes, for some even more, maybe 20 pairs. And, so, and then maybe we bring some electronic gadgets along, etc., etc. If we were to do this, what would happen? Hmm? We would be thinking about all our many possessions. And then we might certainly remember, oh, this piece of clothing here is not quite intact. and. So, um, and it needs certain some repair, stitching job that needs to be done, and you find yourself sitting there in your room and certainly doing a stitching job. When in fact you've come here to meditate and not to do housekeeping. And so 
if we bring plenty of things along onto the retreat, then we have to, then we'll be thinking of, about our items and we will have to look after them. Now, in Asian countries, at certain retreat centers, well, there's all sorts of wildlife around. And sometimes meditators bring a lot of food along. And, you know, they have a whole stash of food, and this then easily attracts a rodent such as mice. And then you know, after you know, just a few days, you recognize that, you know, there's a whole you know, long line of ants uh, <laughs> towards your stash of food. And then you, know, you have to sweep them away and you know, make new arrangements for you know, your food. And so all of this you know, will keep you unnecessarily busy and it will keep you away you know, from you know, the practice. So when we come on a retreat, we just bring the bare essentials uh, along and certainly that certainly would be quite enough. Now, as certainly referred to already you know, during you know, the, you know, one of the earlier you know, Dhamma talks, the restraint of the senses is an important certain form of certain practice or aspect of our meditation practice. And in the sense that when we go somewhere, we do so calmly. When we come from a certain place, we do so calmly. Now, when we eat, we eat calmly. When we dress, we dress calmly. And uh, all of our behavior is a calm and certain restrained you know, form of uh, behavior. Now, this certain refers to the restraint of uh, the senses, which is known here in the context of our two verses as Sant Indriya. And Indriyas are your senses, and Santa means calm or controlled or tranquil. And so there are different ways of doing things. We could maybe rush from one place to another. When we have to do the dishes, we do it in a, uh, in a great rush. Or when we take food, we do it in a rush and then spill food all over the place. So this is one way of doing it. And another way would be a meditator's way, namely with well-restrained senses and including our bodily behavior. Now, the Buddha describes certain advantages of this restraint of the senses. And first of all, 
our mind does not unnecessarily get disturbed by external objects. So if we keep our senses restrained, then there's so many external sights and sounds, etc., that we that do not impinge on the mind. Now, secondly, based on this, then there will, or, or as we're practicing restraint of the senses, we don't see, let's say, enticing objects that otherwise certainly could lead to the arising of desire or even lust. And as a result of this, the mind is free from mental defilements. Mental defilements such as covetousness, such as ill will or dejection. And this then leads to naturally to the arising of a sense of ease, sukha, in the Pali scriptural language. Is the party for this. And so this sense of inner ease or happiness is one of the benefits of the meditation practice. It's one, and certainly there are many others, of course. Now, the next certain quality to be cherished is certainly that of being discreet. The Pani for this is Nipako, which also means to be wise. And when we come across certain physical or mental formations, then we interact with them, not in a shallow manner, but rather in a profound manner. So we then try to understand them in a deeper way and trying to know their true nature. And in the course of the meditation practice, we will then see formations as being subject to impermanence, being subject to unsatisfactoriness and then lacking a self. Now, this certain term, Nipako, has been defined in the Visuddhi Magga as a pragmatic wisdom that takes the lead in all tasks. And a protective form of understanding that guides all our affairs. Now, at times it may happen 
and that's how we exhibit a certain boldness and lack of sudden shame, that we're audacious and sudden brazen. And so we say you know, things that are better left unsaid, and certain we do things that are better left certain undone. And certain, so in other words, our you know, bodily and certain you know, verbal you know, behavior and even you know, mental you know, behavior uh, is rather rough and rather you know, crude. And so, you know, the Buddha you know, has certainly you know, seen you know, this as being, well, opposite to our quality that is not helpful at all for the attainment of that state of peace. Therefore, he says that one should not be impudent. And certainly the Pali term for this is apagabo in is apagabo. And it means that certainly we should not be presumptuously confident and not self-assured. Now, sometimes it does certainly happen that certainly we think of ourselves as certain, you know, very good meditators and we think we know everything already. Who is there to teach me something? And this then easily leads to such bold and brazen statements, verbal statements, or even physical behavior. So what is needed indeed is a mind that is soft and clean and that is rather cultured. <clears throat> now, when we are on retreat, especially in an Asian context, then we may be in need of something, and then we might intentionally seek the association with the laity, with the supporters, in order to get something you know, from them. And so, uh, this kind of an association, you know, which uh, is uh, not very you know, pure, you know, interferes you know, with our you know, meditation practice. And so, um, when we you know, are on a retreat, you know, we don't you know, want to encourage socializing and we don't want to get attached to others, neither our fellow meditators nor to the supporters. If really we need something, then we clearly ask for it and there's no need to overdo it in terms of getting close to others. <coughs> Now, 
socializing you know, sometimes happens on the retreat. Meditators start to you know, visit you know, each other uh, in, you know, in their rooms, and so they pay so-called courtesy you know, visits, and so, you know, then you know, such a you know, conversation may easily you know, then you know, move from a five-minute conversation to a ten-minute, half-an-hour you know, conversation, and much you know, mindfulness and concentration and intuitive wisdom you know, gets lost you know, in you know, the process. Now, the Buddha was certainly not certainly very much in favor of certainly such uh, excessive attachment certainly to others. And if really we do need some friends, then there is one best friend. And what do you think this one best friend could be? Hmm? Who knows? The teacher. Uh, yes, <laughs> but you don't want to get too close to the teacher either. Huh? Pardon me? Mindfulness. Uh, yes, we're getting there. Any, uh, the Dhamma, there you go. So the Dhamma itself, if really you need a friend, and you know, with ordinary friends, they may be okay for a while, but then sooner or later you find out their shortcomings, and then you might notice they are not, after all, not all that reliable. Now, the most reliable thing in life is really the Dhamma. And so, so if we need a friend, then let the Dhamma be our best friend. Now, in this certain connection, the Buddha has certainly spoken of Kaya Viveka and then Chitta Viveka and Upadi Viveka. Kaya Viveka is certain, Viveka means seclusion, Kaya is certain the body. So seclusion of certain the body. This is to be understood as practicing together with others, however each and everyone practices on his or her own. So it means it refers to staying alone, staying in solitude. So being physically or somewhat removed from others. Now, as for the second one, Chitta Viveka, uh, chitta here is the, the mind, so seclusion of uh, the mind. Now, the explanation for this is certainly given as the five hindrances. The mind should be secluded from the five hindrances, which are certain mental aspects, namely the kilesa companions. So we try to keep those away as much as we can. Now, our best companion is that of Upadi Viveka, namely Nibbana, which is an aspect of the Dhamma and its most noble aspect. Now, these are 
14 qualities <clears throat> mentioned in just two verses from a discourse that is well known and certainly being recited all over the world. And this discourse is what? The Karaniya Sutta, there you go, the discourse on loving kindness. Now, when one hears the Karaniya Metta Sutta or recites it, one doesn't necessarily think of it as containing so many instructions for the instructions that are really relevant to our meditation practice. Now, um, the 14 qualities that it would be good to possess, keep those in mind. Also, on occasion, check for yourselves whether you are endowed with each and every one of them. If not, make you know, the necessary uh, adjustments and certainly then if you're well you know, equipped certainly with these 14 qualities, you know, it is likely you know, that certainly you will gain that state of peace. So let me conclude today's certainly Dhamma talk by wishing that may each and every aspect inspired you to live it, to practice it, and certainly then may become a second certain reality. May you make the necessary changes. And there are many changes that we do need to make. And eventually, may it lead us to the attainment of that state that um, is or the state of calm. And may this happen hopefully during this very uh, retreat certainly here at the forest refuge. And this is it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.